Welcome to the One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Brigger. On this week's episode of One Hour Intern, I have the pleasure of speaking with former professional basketball player, founder and principal of the NBA agency, BDA Sports Management. With over 25 years representing sports players, he's the one of the most successful and respected sports agents in the industry, Bill Duffy. Bill, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me, Will. Very excited to do this. So to get started, I'm just going to ask you a question about context of you. So with COVID affecting the world, how have you and your clients managed during this time? And how have you been able to be productive? Yeah. So I've actually been more effective by virtue of the fact that I don't have to travel. So I basically, you know, I'm on the phone all day. So I'm not distracted by travel. I'm not distracted by in-person meetings. So I'm really able to navigate the entirety of the day. And with my clients, you know, they're all over the world and they're in different time zones. So as like this morning, I was on a call in Greece at 5 a.m. my time. I was on a call in New York at 5.30 a.m. my time. So it just allows me to be very effective. And I found that I've really been able to engage more closely with my clients and their families because I have more time without disruption and distraction. And there isn't the expectation for you to get in front of them. So it's not like you're flying in four cities in five days. So. I have really taken advantage of that. It's It's been very effective. Yeah. A lot of people have had difficult times remaining productive during Zoom meetings or even just in the fact that you're not working in person. Do you have any tips or strategies that you've developed during this time that help you remain extra productive? Yeah, I think it's really, really challenging, but you've got to balance and balance your emotions and also really focus on your responsibilities in your profession and you also have to manage the balance of your family i'm also a married father of five children in various ages so they're going through their challenges so i have to be the supporter for them so that's been a bit daunting to say the least but they've all managed it well we're together my wife's done an unbelievable job when this first happened all five kids were here my daughter came from la my older son lives in the area so he was posted up here so We've really managed well as a family. I think it's drawn us actually closer because we wouldn't be able to be in front of each other as much as we have over the course of this time. So you take advantage of the challenges you have. And in this case, just being in close proximity with each other and spending quality time has served us well as a family. Of course. In a bigger picture kind of focus, as an important member of the NBA world, do you see any big changes coming in the next couple of years or any insights you can give on what the next year of the sport looks like? Well, this year is going to be a bit challenging. If you saw in the media reports last week, they're going to try to start the season around Christmas. They said specifically December 22nd, take advantage of the audience that would view the game on Christmas Day. So they before talked about starting in the end of January. So that's going to move things along more quickly. So training camp, free agency, the draft will all be condensed within a two-week period of time. So it's going to be very disruptive, and the players are going to have to really be prepared for this. There's going to be a just a whole different cadence than we've ever had, but that's how life has been for everybody for the last six months. So we don't you know, have exclusivity on that type of a challenge. Everybody's going through this in their own professions and their own personal lives, and in many cases, and very importantly, kids with their educations. So we just have to hold tight and do the best we can. And how do you think that different cadence is going to affect the players and just the type of season that the NBA has this year? Well, I hate to say this, but I think you'll probably see a little bit more injuries 
for the rigors of the season and, and lack of time to prepare for that. The quality of play is going to probably be challenged at least for the first three or four months until teams get their rhythm. It was the same case in the bubble. And you saw at the end the, the better teams that play together and had better chemistry were the ones that continued to succeed. So they'll figure it out. They'll, they'll make adjustments. These are the best basketball players in the world. So they'll be in the right environments with the right trainers, the right support from their coaches, and the right intensity of how they calibrate the intensity of their workouts. And they'll probably be star players that are rested a little bit just so that they don't overexpose themselves. So we'll figure it out. That's what smart people do, right? Yeah, of course. So before you were Bill Duffy, the incredible sports agent, you were just an average kid in a military family moving all around the world. You went to Damien High School in Laverne, California. What was childhood like for you? I had a very, very good childhood because I had two great parents. I had loving environment. I grew up in a really tough urban city. That was Pomona, California. You know, it was competitive. You know, a lot of bullying. When I say bullying, it was just intense out in the neighborhood. We got some street guys, tough mentality. Sports was kind of my saving grace, if you will. I was a good talker, so I could talk my way out of things. But I also turned out, fortunately, quite early to be a very good basketball player. And that commands respect in yeah. communities where you become popular and people don't really mess with you. If you can kick their butt in basketball. And that was kind of my ticket, my segue. But that being said, I can't say enough about having a father who was a hard worker and a provider and a mom who's just a strong Christian woman instilling that in me at a very young age and praying. It's just, I have a good balance. My dad kind of prepared me for the rigors of the world. My mom kept my heart meek. I have that balance in it. It's really worked out well. I also have great siblings. It was a really good childhood. I had great schools. I went to Catholic school in elementary school. I went to Catholic high school, Damien, that you mentioned. My best friends in life are still many of the students that I grew up with. So I, I had a pretty idyllic upbringing in terms of my home and the foundation, and it prepared me well for all the things I've had to deal with. In that foundation, what were the values that your parents really passed on to you, and how did they make sure that you understood them? Well, my dad would say, sir, he was a colonel in the military, and he would always say, things like people don't have to like you as long as they respect you. So, and he taught me organization. He taught me punctuality. He taught me just how to be a man, stand up, be responsible, mm -hmm. be accountable. And my mom, more the forgiving side, turn the other cheek, be unselfish, be a giver. And so, it, like I said, it was a really good balance. But, you know, I could think of a number of sayings that they gave me. My mom would say, if it happens once, shame on them. If it happens twice, shame on me, which means don't let somebody take advantage of you twice. Again, my dad talked about the respect. My mom would always say, once a job has just begun, never leave it till it's done. Be the label, good or bad, do it well or not at all. So yeah. just the yeah. fact that you can remember stuff like that, mm -hmm. it just, it's, it's just locked in my brain. And a lot of prayers too. I still use the same prayers that she taught me as a child that I pray daily. Were there any times that you failed to stand up to their expectations? No. And that's the beauty is I have made myself by force a high achiever, if you will. There was no expectation or no pressure from my parents at all. They just wanted me to be a good person, be a Christian man, represent the family well, just enjoy your life. So there wasn't really like a bar set. So everything that I've done was more self-imposed. Yeah. 
And how did you create that own personal motivation to excel in basketball, to excel in everything else that you excelled at? I think just having high personal aspirations and wanting to be respected, like my dad said. So you be you earn respect by achievement, but also balance that by being a good person to be both. And I just had some really good friends that were high achievers. Also, I kind of gravitated toward those friends. They're kind of your guardrails too. If you're slipping up or you're not working hard, they would always remind you, you know, there's a lot to achieve here. And also, I mean, I think I do have an inherent fear of failure. People always say, well, how do you do all this and how do you do all that? And I can tell you there's a hundred times when I could have easily just wanted to quit because I didn't want to withstand all the pressure and all the challenges that we come across. But just don't believe you you quit. You just rest and recover. You know, you sure. just recalibrate. You know, sure. you got to step away for a few hours or shut it down for a night and just wake up that next morning with all the zest and energy you can muster yeah. to be successful. And everybody has to deal with that. Yeah. And that's such a hard mentality to have. Do you have any ways that you ensure that you keep that mentality, that you can take a rest, but you always get back to what you were doing? Yeah. Well, it's one thing when you're an individual and you have that mindset. It's another thing when you have the actual responsibility of children or clients that count on you. And I'm one thing is I never like to let anybody down. When I give you my word, like I stand by it. That's been very detrimental to me in many cases, whether it's a financial commitment I make or a time commitment. But nobody would ever say I've let them down by design. Maybe circumstances didn't work out, but my intention is always to be, you know, a giver and and be supportive and also hold up my end of the bargain. And that's been the case in my marriage, in the case of my business relationships with my commitment to my children, my commitment to every institution that I've been involved with. So I just have a lot of pride with uh, making sure that I'm one that people can count on. So earlier you had mentioned that you started playing basketball and that's how you earn respect. Can you talk about your relationship with the sport and how it helps you grow as an individual at a young age? Yeah, well, sports is a great thing because it allows for building relationships with people that you're competing with, competing against. Some of my best friends, and I have thousands of friends all over the world, were athletes that I competed against, whether it's in elementary school, high school, college, pursuing professional basketball. It's just amazing. That's why I think sports is a great thing because, you know, irregardless of your class, your social profile, your race, your economics, and even your gender, it allows you to compete and, and share a commonality and it creates bonds. And it creates a level of trust amongst each other. And and many people that I've hired, I like to hire ex-athletes, quite frankly, because there's a bond and and kind of an understanding of how to deal with adversity. One thing my coach, Carol Williams at Santa Clara University, unfortunately, his wife, Susan, actually passed away on Saturday. So very mindful of of Carol and his wife today. But one thing that I remember is when I was playing at Santa Clara, and if we won a game, he would always say, that's great. You know, congratulations. Gonna have fun tonight. Those, but we're gonna be in the gym tomorrow at six a.m. because we got to get ready for the next opponent. And then he'd say the same thing when we lost. He'd go, he'd chew us out, and he'd go, "Okay, now lift your heads up because we got to get up tomorrow at six o'clock and we got to come and fight." So the reaction was still the same, and that's how life is. You can't rest on your laurels. You can't be comforted like, "Oh, I achieved this, I achieved that," because there's always tomorrow. And when you reach a certain level, there's even more pressure to maintain that level of expectation. And so you just got to keep reinventing your motivation every day. I call it like waking up with energy, energy and passion. 
you know, that morning, like you're going to master that particular day with everything that you pursue. And if you do that consistently and you do it subconsciously, then the aggregate of that equates to success because yeah. you're doing good, you're doing good, you're doing good. And that equals you no know, success. Yeah. The other day, Steve Kerr said something to me that I think you might relate to. And he said, after I see some of my players lose games, they consider themselves a failure, but then they bounce back from that failure. Is that something that you've seen yourself live up to when you kind of can't succeed at something, but you bounce back from it? Have you ever had that mentality that you failed and you needed to overcome it? Well, first of all, I love Steve Kerr. I love everything about Steve Kerr. So I wanted to hear that podcast because I have great admiration for Steve personally and professionally. You know, that's just resiliency, right? But I don't necessarily like to use the word failure. I don't like to use the word stress and I don't like to use the word failure. I like to use the word challenge because challenges can be overcome. So maybe you come up short, maybe things didn't work out to your satisfaction, but there's also something to be gained from that experience. So I think you just move on and you overcome. But the thing is, the power of your mind to overcome whatever limitations that you feel you have, you just have to power through that. So an athlete typically has to do that because they got to come back the next day and perform. And you see a lot of great athletes when they have a bad performance, they come out and have a spectacular performance because they ration whatever type of intensity to overcome whatever shortcomings they just experienced maybe the previous night. So I think those are lessons to be learned as an athlete, but it carries over into life. You're going to always have to have a high level of resolve, resiliency, passion to overcome all of your challenges. Yeah. So let's go to the year 1977. You're my age. Star Wars is just released. NASA space shuttle, its first test flights going on. Gas is only 65 cents. And the Eagles Hotel California is the most popular song. <laughs> yeah. Up to this time, what's the biggest, I won't say failure, but I'll say what's the biggest challenge that you've faced up to this time? You know, I really didn't have many challenges or shortcomings because I was a very good student because I studied. My parents forced me to study, which was great. And I was always curious, a learner, wanted to read. So I kind of prepared myself for the, the rigors of academic challenges. But as an athlete, I was pretty successful. I didn't really meet much opposition. When I was your age, Will, I ended up going to University of Minnesota. So I left home when I was 17, went out to Minneapolis by myself. And I challenged myself and it was lonely in a way, but it was also exhilarating to put myself in that position. And I don't want to get too much credit, but when you go away to play college athletics and no matter where you are, particularly if it's a big school, people know who you are and you're kind of a celebrity. So you sure. get treated well. So it's not like if I was just a regular student who went away and nobody knew who I was, I had no identity. My identity was already pronounced because people know who the basketball players are. So, yeah. and it was curious because here's this kid from California coming out to Minnesota. And so I think that gave me more attention. So, but just being away from my family, creating new friendships and many, many of those friends that I cultivated back then are still my lifelong friends. So it's been a great experience to go away from home at that age and really challenge myself and just grow up as a man. I learned how to shave when I was away in college because I didn't have hair on my face then. Just a lot of things I didn't really have experience. I go from my mom's house, like food, laundry, navigating my checkbook, just stuff like that that I was forced to do independently. It forced me to grow up. So I'm glad I challenged myself that way. Yeah. 
a big thing that you mentioned was making friends and being able to build lifelong friends when you were in elementary school, high school, and at college. And then you also said that you were really good at conversation and talking. Can you talk about your strategies of engaging with other people that have helped you build such meaningful connections that can pass beyond just your schooling experience, but really affect you in the future? Yeah. Well, I generally like to consider myself a nice person. I'm, I'm very friendly by nature, but also if you're an athlete and you're successful and you're also friendly, people tend to like you even more because they don't expect you to behave that way. They think maybe you have an ego or you're self-centered, but I find that I've always maintained a, a large sense of humility because I'm a humble person. I'm a humble servant. That's who I refer to myself as and everything that I do to help people and put that spirit out. So I think people like that. And it's helped me with a multitude of relationships because I just try to help people and support people with no expectation in return. And that has served me very, very well over the years as I've built my business and my reputation. So I think just if you're a giver, wherever you are, people will appreciate it. Now, there's always going to be toxic people around, but it's funny. I was telling my kids last night at dinner that you conduct yourself the right way and what people think of you is not your business. You can't really control that. And not everyone's going to like you. There's people that are jealous or envious, but just kill them with kindness. Just be yeah. nice and be pleasant. I've used that as my prison throughout my whole life. Yeah. And I've asked a similar question already, but that's a very hard mentality again to have when people are being toxic to kill them with kindness. How do you ensure that you always have that mentality? And if you haven't always had that mentality, how have you bounced back and made sure that you've brought it back into your life? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I, I keep my peace and keep my emotions. I always tell my staff, don't be emotional, be intelligent. You just have to breathe. And you know, if you're really upset about something, step away, contemplate, put yourself in the other person's shoes, and just try to be balanced as best you can. And it's really hard because we're so emotional and those are volatile, but I tend to really maintain peace. It just allows me to keep the right frame of mind, stay consistent with that mentality. Yeah, of course. So back to chronological order here. As you said, you went to University of Minnesota and then you decided to transfer to Santa Clara University. What went into your decision to transfer and how did you know it was time to make a change? Yeah, so basketball was was a bit of a challenge at Minnesota. We had some issues with the school was put on probation. There were problems, and it wasn't the best environment for me. And then academically, I probably wasn't as focused as I needed to be. So I was recruited out of high school by Santa Clara. So I had a relationship there with the school head coach, and you know, also I'm Catholic, the Jesuit school. So and there were about three or four of my high school classmates who were there, and they loved it. And it was California, Northern California, which I love. So it was a good transition. And that was probably the best decision I ever made as far as my professional career, academically more than anything. It's just to this day, I'm, I'm on the board of trustees at Santa Clara. I've stayed heavily involved with the school. And it's been a real good relationship for me. So I'm, I'm glad I made that move. Yeah. There, you were a lead scorer on the basketball team, scholar athlete of the year, District 8 All-American. Can you talk about your basketball experience there, how your teammates helped you improve, how your coaches influenced you? Anything important from that experience? Sure. You've done your research here, Will. Santa Clara, Minnesota is a great institution. But when you play basketball at that level, you're almost like a pro. You know, you're playing in front of 
18,000 people, you're playing on television, and you're really a celebrity. Santa Clara, basketball or sports is secondary. And I needed that at that time to really focus on my academics and my academic development and basketball becoming secondary, even though it was a competitive environment. So that was the biggest thing. And the coaches and the instructors, professors, president of the school would always preach balance and the whole Jesuit mentality of giving and things of that nature. So it provided a great foundation that was kind of an extension of my high school education, my elementary school education, kind of the values that my mother and father had instilled with me. So I'd say the biggest lesson was just focusing on athletics, but making sure that academics was the priority. And I did that at that time. Yeah. And you love the sport of basketball. So how did you know that you needed to make school your main focus? Well, I don't believe anyone should put all race in one basket. And, you know, I knew I'd get drafted in the NBA or have that opportunity, but that may or may not have been a lifelong career. So I just believe in versatility, being diverse. So it was important for me to be educated and be intelligent or knowledgeable or educated. Just I want to navigate through life with some institutional artillery to allow me to deal with challenges and opportunities in a career. So Santa Clara absolutely provided that. Yeah, yeah. So zooming out on your college experience and your high school experience, were there any particular specific moments that you see as really pivotal in becoming the person you are today? where you learned a value, experienced a challenge, or just had to overcome something that helped you, shape you? Yeah. I learn. I'm the type of person who likes to learn from observation. I study people exhaustively, biographies, you know, people's backgrounds. So I, and I, my mentality is I want to learn from other people's mistakes instead of make those mistakes. So when yeah. I read about somebody who has a big, like a negative experience or makes a big mistake, immediately go, wow. I hope I don't do that or I won't do that. But probably the biggest lesson I learned in high school was a young man who was on our basketball team. And he was our second best player. And he came from a very affluent family. My family was middle class. We lived in a very modest home um, in just a, just a modest area. He lived on the hill in a mansion. Both of his parents were very successful, independently wealthy. And the one thing I noticed was his parents never came to watch him play because they were always working or traveling. And my parents, you know, supported every game. They came to every game on Friday night and, you know, we go to the pizza place and stuff. But when I go up to his house, I want to stay up there, like, a, you know, 20 rooms, Mountain View, the whole Pomona Valley. Yeah. But the house was empty. As beautiful as it was, it was empty. And he became empty, right? He didn't have that support, that validation from his parents. And he was a very good player. So sometimes he'd come to my house and, you know, there was like two of us, me and my little brother in bunk beds in a small room. And he just slept on the floor. He just yeah. wanted to be in our house. And my mom would cook breakfast and hug him. And I just learned to me at that time, like materialism is not really what I'm about or where the substance comes. That was really a really interesting lesson for me to observe that. And I, it resonated with me. Man, I got two parents. Don't need all the money in the world. We're eating properly. I'm in school, I'm having fun, but it's not all this wealth that his parents had that didn't provide any sense of identity for him. And he really thanks me to this day for being a foundation for him on what's important in life. Tell you another story. Coming from LA, I have a couple of cousins who married into the entertainment industry. One married the president of Motown Records, and another cousin married a heavyweight champion of the world at the time. And so 
when I was like in the eighth grade, I'd be around our family functions, you know, in the middle of Hollywood. And I'd see all these superficial people around all these celebrities. And it just made me like, I just didn't like it. You know, you'd meet them and it was kind of a fake, genuine, hi, you know, how are you? And, you know, you could just tell it wasn't really sincere. And you could just tell that people in that position have a lot of fake people around them. And if you follow celebrities, and I do this for a living where I, I manage talent, there's a lot of suspect characters that are attracted to talent and wealth. Yeah. And so it just made me, even at the age of the eighth grade, is to really want to deal with real sincere, caring people. So I've just been mindful of how vulnerable or susceptible you are to people that may exploit you if you're wealthy or you're famous. And so as a manager of people like that, I want them to know I care about them. I don't care about the fame. I care about you as a person. And that comes across because they know I'm there for them. And we talk about those matters too. Like who's really important to you? Who's really there for you? And and all these other people are going to be gone when you stop drilling that ball, but I'm still going to be here. And I do that. So it just, it's just allowed me to look at things differently from those experiences. So to your players, you've been considered beyond an agent, as you've described, even a, a life coach, a, a close friend. What do you do in those conversations to make it so that they don't go down that superficial materialistic path that these experiences have showed you is not the right path to follow? Yeah. Well, at my level of experience, they know that I've been through everything. I've seen everything. I have credibility in, in my narration. So I think that's number one, they respect me. But number two, I have so many examples that I share with them. And I just tell them stuff like, these are the traps. These are the landmines you have to watch out for. And I'm telling you, so it's up to you to take that wisdom in or you're going to trip up. Because I tell them, I I know how this movie's going to end if you don't do things the right way. I said, you got to have guardrails around you or you're, you're very susceptible every day. So just continue to reiterate that and have the courage to tell them what they need to hear instead of what they want to hear. And I'm I'm pretty good at that. Of course. And how do you develop that courage? I think just consistency and they know what I stand for and people know that. So when I say something, it has a lot of credibility and it couldn't have said the same things when I was younger than I can now, but I've been married for 32 years. I've raised five children. So when I have a client with young children, I kind of know what to tell them about helping their kids get educated properly and keeping their kids' feet on the ground how to make sure they maintain their marriage, their wife, because I've been doing that for 32 years. So I think I just have the credibility at this stage to kind of be a guru, if you will, in, in every, every area of their life. Before we get into your professional career, let's go to the segment called The Coffee Break. Where you can tell a funny or an embarrassing story from your life. Does anything in particular come to mind? Hmm. Wow. I don't know that there's anything embarrassing other than (laughs) silly things. Like one time, this is very embarrassing, but it's hilarious. I was riding a bike when I was in the ninth grade and I was was playing sports and I was getting some popularity. There was three girls in the playground at the elementary school where we lived. And, you know, they saw me and they knew who I was. And I was being super cool riding the bike. And, you know, looking at them and like thinking, oh, they're checking me out, whatever. And I ran right into a pole and just collapsed. (laughs) I mean, I fell down. I was in deep pain and they were looking and they were, they were trying not to laugh. And I mean, it just took away all of my, my manhood. So 
that was just totally embarrassing. And I, they came over and said, are you okay? Are you okay? And I tried to act like I was okay, but I was dying. So I still remember that like it was yesterday, but you know, I've had some embarrassing things where somebody sees me someplace or doing something stupid or silly, but I, I don't really have anything. There was one other story in Minnesota where I was, um, it was after we played a big game and it was during the winter. So we went to this restaurant after the game and on the street, the window from the restaurant was from the, the bottom to the top. So it was all glass. And, you know, here I am from California, not knowing how to navigate the slippery slopes of the snow and all that on the sidewalk. And man, I'm walking in front and all the, the people who were fans were at the game. They see me there and they're all waving. You know, oh, there's build up for the basketball player. And I lose my footing and I'm slipping and sliding and slipping sliding, and I could not get up. I fell down and I kept trying to get up and I was crawling and I tried to get up and flip backwards. And it was like Laurel and Hardy, right? It was just an absolute comedy. So I finally just slid on my belly out of the view, <laughs> went around the building and went back to my apartment. I said, there's no way I can go in that restaurant. And my buddies were in there waiting for me to eat. So I know a lot of people got a lot of laughs out of that, but those were more visual things that yeah. crazy that's great so now back to chronological order you're playing at a uh, university of santa clara and then you get recruited in the draft or mm-hmm. you get drafted in the draft can you talk about what your basketball experience was like yeah so you know i unfortunately my senior year i broke my wrist in about game 12 and you know things were going really well up to that point and i actually had a good game against uh, Michael Jordan in North Carolina. And that, that was a big game as far as just how I was perceived by the NBA at the time. But I, I couldn't recover from that injury. So I ended up playing the last five or six games almost left-handed. And so it was really a hardship. So I didn't get all the exposure. I didn't get to play in the postseason tournaments. So I ended up getting drafted by the Denver Nuggets in the fifth round. Went down to LA and played in the summer league to earn my way. It was just a little brief cup of coffee at that time and it just I knew that it wasn't going to be an extended career so it was just through that experience like I really realized you know how fragile this was because coming out of high school and going to college you know I was expected to be one of those guys and it just kind of reinforced for me more just don't count on the longevity of a pro career and I wouldn't do that anyway but certainly that injury really woke me up to make me understand I better not just covet basketball as a career. And you really wanted to pursue basketball and, you know, you've been playing and you focused on it throughout college. And then you went to the summer league. How did it feel knowing that you didn't think you were going to have the career you had been touted to have and that you might retire early and you might have to take a new path in life? That was a scary time because that was the first time that it's a public failure, if you will. You know, when you grow up, and everyone thinks you're going to be this, you're going to be that, and you don't reach that, you got a lot of questions to answer. And you don't like, if you're just a regular student, people, you graduate from college, they're like, wow, what are you going to do next? That's exciting. But then when you don't make it as an athlete at a certain level, everybody knows it. And it's almost like it's, they're apologetic. Oh man, I'm sorry things didn't work out or whatever. And it's almost like a funeral because they're, everyone's highlighting what you weren't able to achieve. So. You know, you got to be strong within yourself and, and use the same, I always say, use the same intensity that you use to become a good basketball player and just rechannel that in another area. And so what I've definitely done, Will, is 
rechanneled all that intensity in another avenue and working my tail off, getting up early, you know, all the same principles of work ethic and application. I've done that and channeled that in another dimension. And it's really, really worked out well. Yeah. Was there a, a big break moment in your sports agent career where you knew that you had channeled the energy the right way and you were going to be successful? You were going to have an impactful career? I don't think along those terms because you have to grind every day. So yeah. I don't work any less harder than I did from the first day I started, maybe even more because I'm juggling more. But, you know, like I said earlier, you can't rest on your laurels. So I don't, people say, oh, you're this big agent, whatever. I, I don't feel that. I wake up every morning like the cupboard's dry, like I have to start from scratch. Yeah. And I put pressure on myself to provide excellence each day in every relationship, every negotiation. And the one thing I'll say is that I've learned to challenge myself and put sure. my, make myself, and this is very unnatural. There's two things that are unnatural for me, like speaking the way I speak and recruiting and being aggressive. It's not my nature. I force myself to be this way. And then the second thing is just being complacent. Like if I ever feel like, oh man, you think you're great. Like that lasts about 10 seconds that I just wake myself up and say, man, you ain't done nothing. Like you better get back after it because you could lose a client. You could screw up a deal. So I just stay on my toes. I know I've really challenged myself because I'm doing stuff that I probably don't have a natural capability to do. It's hard. The resiliency that's required is hard. I force myself. So I will have no regrets when I die that I didn't put myself to the ultimate test in what I've done. I feel that, you know, I'm 60 years old. I don't know how much longer I'll be around, but I won't have any regrets. And I think that's a good way to live. Do you ever have self-doubt or confidence issues that you need to overcome? I mean, telling yourself you're not anybody yet can be even like mentally deteriorating. I don't know. I don't know if you experience that, but if you ever have, like, how do you? Everybody does. Everybody does. So you have to play a mental game where you use that as a weapon to, to put yourself on your toes, create an insecurity. So you have to overcompensate to work harder. Everyone doubts themselves because you're going to have ups and downs and you have to, from within, manufacture confidence. You know, yeah. you worked hard, feel confident. We all have anxiety. I mean, because you don't know what's going to happen a minute to minute or day to day. You don't, people are so volatile. You don't know from talking to someone you talk to from one day to the next, how they're going to react. And that's personally, even with marriages, you may wake up one day and your wife doesn't want to see you anymore. Like you just don't know. So I try to be steady and even and keep a, a certain mentality so I don't get too high or too low. And then I keep that middle equilibrium to deal with all the challenges. And then I also tell myself all the time, like, you're intelligent enough to handle this challenge. Think, think through it, come up with the right solution, be smart. You just have to tell yourself that so that you're equipped to deal with whatever challenge you have. Did you have any mentors or people in your life other than your parents who helped you get to that mentality and have this mental capability to get past self-doubt and anxiety and failures? Well, I'm a Christian and I use the principles of my Christianity because it's all in there. It's all in the scripture and that's the template to work from. And I still hold true to that. So that's been kind of my foundation. There's a lot of pastors that I believe more in getting mentoring from pastors. I have business people that I talk to and, you know, we'll get input from or ideas. Interestingly enough, 
a lot of times I'll have a relationship with another agent from another sport who maybe is high profile and we can share, you know, common stories and you just feel like, wow, they're going through the same thing I'm going through. So you don't feel isolated, but really I just feel like there's a spiritual foundation that I adhere to and it serves me very well in everything that I ever have to deal with. Yeah. As an agent interacting with those other agents, what are the common stories that you like to tell to help them or help your clients move past personal issues and get to the next step? Yeah, I would say dealing with crazy parents, the expectations of the, or the ingratitude of some of the clients, like you kind of just shake your head, like, are you serious? And when you talk to someone, they have the same thing. It's, it's kind of really, it just makes you feel like, wow, I'm not the only one who has to deal with that. And yeah. what should you do? And part of it is you're, you're trying to please someone to make them happy. And sometimes they get it. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't appreciate it. But you also have to teach yourself, don't take it personal, right? You can't take things personal because if someone mistreats you, they're going to mistreat other people as well. It's not just isolated toward you, especially if you haven't done anything to offend them. So, yeah. you know, you got to have a strong mind. Power of the mind. You know, I've read books about that. This positive energy, power of the mind, proactivity. You know, those are cues that I always try to instill within my mind. Yeah, sure. Of course. So now I want to zoom out even bigger picture. We've talked about your career. We've talked about your early childhood. Looking back, have there been any pivotal moments or challenges that we've passed over that you think are really pivotal to who you are? Using experience, treating people well. I think I'm at the point in my life where I, I just don't put myself in situations where there's a lot of risk. And I just work. I focus on my job, you know, my family, my wife. Keep things pretty simple. You know, you can go out there and get involved with people that, like we said earlier, it's like a toxic relationship. But I avoid all that. I'm into two things right now. I'm into selectivity and who I interact with. I try to be very mindful of that. And the second thing is just my emotional, spiritual, physical well-being, like consciously taking care of myself, eating properly, resting properly putting the right spirit and the right thoughts in my mind to just allow me to not just succeed, but to flourish, to really be a game changer. And I always tell people, I like to be that light that walks into a room that's positive. I don't like negative energy and I like to uplift people. So that's really important to me that I just be that beacon of light and hope. And, you know, when you're, when you have a, a profile and you reach out to people and help them, I mean, they really appreciate it. And the fact that they even, they believe, you know, how could this person be thinking about me? Like, I like to do that. When someone's down, give them a call. You know, I always tell people, when you're having your own problems, what's the solution? Go help somebody else. Take it away from you. And go help somebody else and you'll feel better about yourself. So yeah. I do that all the time. Yeah. For my last two questions, now that you've reached a pinnacle of success as an incredible agent in the sports world, how would you define success? Well, I don't define it materially. I, I mean, we all want comfort, so you want some level of financial security, whatever that is. It doesn't have to be at an extreme level, yeah. but I quantify success in my reputation and how people perceive me as a human being. That's sure. the most important thing, and that's what I'm going to stand for. So success is not material. Success is who you are, how your spirit is. There's a pastor by the name of uh, Stephen Furtick. Many people know who he is out of North Carolina. And he was being interviewed, uh, I think, by T.D. Jakes. And they asked him, what do you want to be known by? And it was yeah. very profound. He said, 
when I die, I want the people that knew me the best to respect me the most, which means the people that you touch, what do they really think of you? Because they really know you. So you're genuine, you have integrity and you know, integrity will is what, how you conduct yourself when nobody's looking, right? Who are you true to being the good person you need to be? And if you live that way, you keep, you eliminate the drama because a lot of our problems are self-imposed by doing the wrong things, behaving the wrong way, being with the wrong people. That's preventable. So, you know, life can be pretty simple if you minimize the drama and stay focused and eat, live a clean life. And you probably won't have as many challenges as you might think if you live that way. Yeah. So with that definition in mind, let's go to the last segment, the PowerPoints. If you could give three pieces of advice after having this hour-long conversation, three takeaways from the whole thing, what would they be? I would say have a focus on goals, like set goals with yourself so that you're always trying to achieve and pursue. So make sure you have goals. Number two is regulate you know, what you expose yourself to in terms of relationships. Just be around positive people. You can help each other out. And the third thing is just try to be a master at what you do. Be all in. Be fully committed. Don't take shortcuts. And you feel good about yourself. And for instance, the example I gave you with basketball, I was doing everything I could to be the best basketball player I could be. And it got to a certain level. And that same energy, it just went to another track, yeah. right? Because it was still in sport. I was learning things while I was playing basketball that I'd been able to apply to my career as a professional sports agent. So it wasn't all for not, right? I just jumped to another track and then went up to a higher level from that. So just be a master at what you do. You know, you're here for a short period of time. Do the best you can. Don't put pressure on yourself. Find things that you enjoy and try to excel at, but also yeah. enjoy life. We're yeah. here for enjoyment and it shouldn't be torture. So, you know, we're all going to have challenges we have to overcome. We're all going to have roadblocks, but don't take it that seriously, right? Don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah. Great. Bill, thank you for everything. Thank you for the time. Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes. Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks. Thanks.